0: If you want to make your way back toward your seats, the uh, the calendar says Easter. The weather says Christmas. My. Um, my wife this morning, actually, before the first service, greeted three people with a Merry Christmas. <laughs> but it was like 7.15 in the morning, so I don't think anybody was awake enough to like, really take note of that. Um, we're glad you're here to, to celebrate Easter with us. Uh, let's pray, and then we'll get started. God, thank you for this morning, for the chance to come together and to celebrate. God, thank you for your son, his work on the cross and his triumph uh, out of the tomb. Lord, I pray that our time together this morning is glorifying and honoring to you. God, would your spirit be here? Uh, Move in our hearts. Draw us closer in relationship with you. God, give us uh, a knowledge and an understanding of the truth of your word. God, but don't let it stop there. Would you work in our hearts so that it becomes lived reality for us every single day? God, we pray these things in the name of the risen Jesus. Amen. Well, we... We currently live in a world that is inundated on a daily basis with reasons to despair. We're bombarded by a 24-hour news cycle that seems almost radically committed to only talking about all the bad things that happen in our city or nation or world. And whether it's true or not, that cycle makes it seem as though there's more conflict and violence and pain and tension in our world right now than there's ever been before. And that's even without taking into account all the reports of potential violence and conflict and pain and tension. Our political climate is as tenuous and divided as it's ever been. It seems as though there are legitimate reasons at every turn to worry about our kids' safety, our financial security, our own well-being, and even the abuse of power by those in leadership roles within all sectors of our society. And then add on top of that, the reality that social media in the middle of our normal moments of life makes it possible to get online and see an endless stream of carefully selected and curated highlights from the lives of our friends and acquaintances. As if life weren't challenging enough, the mundane normalcy of our lives cannot ever compare with the running highlight reel we see from the lives of the people that we interact with on social media. As a result of all of this, depression and suicide rates in America are at an all-time high, and they don't seem to be lowering or slowing down at any point in the near future. Happy Easter. (laughs) Welcome to church. We're here this morning to talk about hope, and part of what's required to talk about the hope of the resurrection and the hope of Jesus Christ is that we have a very clear picture of what reality is. And despite everything that I've just listed, even though those are true in the world around us, I believe very firmly that there's overwhelming reason not to be given over to despair or to hopelessness. In fact, this morning on Easter Sunday, we gather together in order to celebrate the triumph of hope. And we're not talking about some sort of like ideological idea of hope or some sort of philosophical thought about what hope is. We're gathered together this morning to celebrate the historical reality that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And that when he did, hope triumphed, life Reigned supreme over death, light over darkness. What I want to do this morning is talk about the real life impact that that real life event can have on your real life today. And so I want to do that by doing two things. One is that we're going to look at Romans 5, verses 1 through 11. So if you have a Bible and you want to open that up, you're welcome to follow along with us. The verses will also be on the screen, so if you don't have a Bible or have one on your phone, you'll be able to follow along with us. The second thing I want to do this morning is I want to tell three stories, all of them factual. And in the course of doing those two things, I hope that we can see with great clarity that at the resurrection, hope triumphed over despair. And that it didn't just stay there at the resurrection. That that's true for us today as well. So let me start with my first story. It picks up on a Thursday night. A man has just finished having dinner with a group of his closest friends. And he heads outside to spend some time alone. Which wasn't particularly unusual for this man. But what did make it a little unusual is that he seemed to be on edge. In fact, over the course of his time in solitude, he actually kind of snapped a little bit at a couple of the guys that he had brought with him. And as he's over there, there begins to be this commotion. And he and the friends that he brought with him are able to see that there's a mob coming. And at the front of that mob is one of the very individuals they had just eaten dinner with. Before they really know what's happening, The man's been arrested. The rest of the night and the early morning hours of Friday are spent in a blur and a flurry of movement and accusations and trials and ultimately the anxiety of the unknown. And when the dust has settled, the man has been convicted of a false crime and sentenced to death. The means of that execution is to be crucifixion. And so... At about six in the morning, after enduring hours of torture and torment, the man is forced to carry the crossbar of his cross through the city and up a hill to a place known as the Place of the Skull. And it's around 9 a.m. when he finally arrives, and he's affixed to that cross with a criminal on each side of him. And he's left there to die while a crowd watches and hurls insults at him. Three agonizing hours pass. And around noon, a normal sunny day goes completely dark. And there's some commotion in the temple down in the city because this veil in the middle of the temple has been torn. And as all of that happens, the man on the cross cries out, Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. And with that, he breathes his last. One of the Roman guards who is standing there is caught up in everything that he's witnessing and all that's happening around him. And he says out loud, but really to no one in particular, truly this man was the Son of God. That man was Jesus of Nazareth. And in that moment, it was hard to know exactly what his death meant. It was hard to know just how meaningful it was. After all, hundreds, thousands of people were sentenced to death by crucifixion during the Roman era. But this felt different, even to the Roman guard who was present and who had witnessed numerous crucifixions throughout his career. It was different. It was extraordinary, even. Rather than merely accomplishing the Roman Empire's desired end, which was putting someone to death in as painful of a manner as possible, Jesus' death accomplished much, much more. And in order to fully celebrate what happened on Easter Sunday, we have to have a really good understanding of what happened that Friday. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at both of those acts, the crucifixion and the resurrection. We're just going to point out some stuff that ends up being reality because of their taking place. And I want to start with the crucifixion. Because on the cross, all the blessings of forgiveness were won for you, not by you. There's nothing you could have done to have won them for yourself. They were won by Jesus on your behalf. The first four verses of Romans chapter 5 are all about those blessings. We could point out a lot of these, but Paul points out four. He says, therefore, since you have been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have also obtained access through Him by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also rejoice in our afflictions because we know that affliction produces endurance. Endurance produces proven character and proven character produces hope. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, His work on the cross on your behalf, you have peace with God. You have access into his grace. You have joy in the hope of the glory of God. And Paul goes on to say, you have hope no matter what your circumstances might be. No matter what the six o'clock news tells you or how difficult your situation is at work or what's happened in your family recently or the strain that you feel because of a certain situation. Paul says, if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you have hope. Not you might be able to have hope, you do. All four of those things, peace and access and joy and hope, by faith in Jesus Christ, those aren't things you could have. They're blessings you do have. We're all human, and even... The person in this room right now that we would look to and say they have the greatest faith, the strongest faith, they're the quote-unquote best Christian, if you will, is prone to forget. We're prone to forget that we have all of these things, that we can rejoice and have joy and hope in the midst of them. And so Paul gives us a promise in verse 5. It actually answers the question of our own forgetfulness. He says, this hope will not disappoint us. Because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who He has given us. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit has come into you. And even when you're most tempted to despair or you're most prone to being overwhelmed by the brokenness and the hopelessness that surrounds you, there's the Holy Spirit just pouring out the love of God into your heart over and over and over, continuously, and this unending sort of flooding in your heart. That Friday on the cross, those things were won for you. Not by you, not because of you. They were won for you by Jesus because of His willingness to go to the cross. That moment on Good Friday is the ultimate proof, the ultimate picture of the depth of God's love for us. In fact, it's like the proof text that God loves humanity. Part of what resides at the irreducible core of love is giving. The depth of a love, in fact, can be measured in part by taking the cost of a gift and holding it up next to the worthiness of the recipient. Let me illustrate that for you. My wife, Melody, is an incredibly loving individual. If you know her, then you know what it is to be loved by her. She gives of herself all the time, her time and her energy and her emotion, and yet her love for those around her is different than the love that she has for me. I know that because I understand the cost of the gift and the worthiness of the recipient. I'm not trying to brag, but she loves me more than she loves anybody else. <laughs> I know that because she's given me more than she gives to other people. There are like 7.5 billion people on planet Earth. If we just say exactly half of those are male, that's 3.75 billion men. And she went ahead and X'd out all of the other options in order to give herself to me in marriage. That gift cost her. It cost her $3 billion and a lot of other numbers that end in a nine. <laughs> right? And yet there's a second part to that because you got to take the cost of the gift and then hold it up in comparison to the worthiness of the recipient. And so when we stood... At the altar, on the day that we took our marriage vows, I knew full well all of the faults that were involved with me. I knew all the shortcomings, all the hang-ups, all the difficulties, and there was Melody, who probably at least conceptually understood that I wasn't the perfect knight in shining armor that I had presented myself to be. And so we step into marriage, and now we're some years down the road here, and the, the worthiness of the recipient has become clear to her. And the answer is not very. She has come to this understanding of the faults and the hang-ups and the broken pieces of who I am. And the cost of the gift and the worthiness of the recipient makes it pretty obvious that for some unexplainable reason, She's got a high degree of love for me, and it almost doesn't make sense. Sometimes there's something in Scripture that an author like Paul here in Romans, ultimately God, wants to make so clear to us that He repeats it multiple times in a short period. And so I want to read Romans 5, 6 through like the first half of verse 10, because Paul makes it very clear the worthiness of the recipient of Jesus on the cross and the cost of that gift. Let me just read the verses. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person, perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How much more then, since we have now been declared righteous by his blood, will we be saved through him from wrath? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. And then verse 10 is going to go on. Four different times in there, because one time wasn't enough and one adjective wasn't enough. Paul talks about the worthiness of the recipient. Maybe you missed it the first time through, but let me change what this looks like on the screen to draw those out. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Jump down to verse eight. But God proves his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. We were helpless, literally just spiritually powerless. We could do nothing about our state. Paul says that we were ungodly, godless. The reality that left to ourselves, we don't really want anything to do with who God is. In fact, we would rather just explain Him away entirely if we could. Paul says that we were sinners, which is To our modern ears, maybe the most offensive word in there. One way to define sin is that it's missing the mark. That God has this standard that he holds up for humanity, for how we're to interact with him and to interact with each other. And we're kind of shooting at the target and we miss. But the reality is that left to ourselves, we don't even shoot at the right target. We just willfully point at a different one and happily fire away over there. And then he says we were enemies. Hostile opponents. Picture an angry teenager in a fit of rage with his fists drawn up, ready to go to battle against someone else. What Paul's driving at is clear. You deserve absolutely nothing from God. I deserve absolutely nothing from God. And yet, in the midst of describing that, he's also pointed out the cost of the gift. Multiple times. Let me switch what this looks like again. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. We were totally powerless. We could do nothing for ourselves. We were the very people who would wish to explain God away or enjoy living as if he weren't real. And in the middle of that, Christ died for us goes on in verse eight. God proves his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died. While we were rather enjoying ourselves, intentionally shooting at the wrong target, Jesus died for us. Verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through his death. As we stood and lived in direct opposition to God, his own son was put to death on our behalf. Again, there's a clear statement here. God gave you absolutely everything. He gave you a son. He gave you himself. God gave absolutely everything to those who deserved absolutely nothing. That is the picture of God's love. That's the ultimate picture of the glory of who God is. It's the reality of Jesus on the cross. It's the hope in which we rejoice. I'd like to tell my second story now, if that's all right. It starts in Ephrata, Pennsylvania in the middle of the Revolutionary War, and it centers on two men. One man is Peter Miller. He was a pastor at the time. He was widely known and greatly respected and admired far outside even his area of Pennsylvania. The second man is a man named Michael Widman. He was Peter Miller's neighbor and also a local tavern owner. And There's some history and backstory to their interactions with one another that I don't really have time to get into, but It was widely understood that Michael Widman really disliked Peter Miller. In fact, when they would bump into each other in town, Michael would oftentimes spit in Peter's face or trip him on the sidewalk. And one time he even beat Peter up, punching him in the face repeatedly. One day, following the Battle of Brandywine, some British officers wandered into Michael Widman's tavern. And while they were present, Widman spoke of General Howe, the commander of the British forces, in a particularly uncomplimentary manner. And it elicited a response from these British officers. In fact, they jumped up and they put a pistol into Widman's chest. And in the ensuing confusion that broke out in the tavern, I picture this moment being like a scene in Pirates of the Caribbean or something. Somehow, Michael Widman slipped out a window gun in his chest at one moment. The next moment, he's out the window, and he's running to hide, and he realizes, I can't hide forever. And so after a couple of days, he comes to the decision that he's going to go to Philadelphia, where General Howe is, and he's going to beg for his forgiveness. So he stops by home, and he heads off toward Philadelphia. And when he arrives, he offers essentially a plea bargain to the British general in exchange for the location of multiple Continental Army ammunition stores, British general will grant a pardon to Michael Widman. General Howe takes him up on it. And so Widman lives, but he finds himself in even deeper trouble because while he was gone, his wife went to the Continental Army and told them what her husband had gone to do. He immediately made himself an enemy, of the U.S. Continental Army, and as soon as he emerged from behind British lines, he was apprehended by the Pennsylvania militia, court-martialed, uh, uh, convicted of treason, and sentenced to hang. This is where Peter Miller re-enters the story. Upon hearing of Widman's situation, Miller reacted in a way that was totally unexpected. Miller was not wealthy; he didn't own a horse, but he decided to himself that he wanted to go to George Washington and beg for Widman's forgiveness. So he walks 60 miles to Valley Forge, where General Washington is stationed. And when he arrives, he sits down and he pleads Widman's case, imploring General Washington to extend a pardon. George Washington recorded the conversation this way in his journal. I told the man that I did not feel compelled to pardon his friend, to which the minister replied in earnest, My friend? Why, he is not my friend. In fact, he is my worst living enemy. The fact that this man had walked 60 miles to save the life of his enemy, in my judgment, put the matter in a different light. And with that in mind, I granted the request. Miller rushed 60 miles back to Ephrata, and a couple days later went to the execution proceedings. And as Widman walked up onto the gallows, Peter Miller stepped forward. Seeing him, Michael Widman exclaimed, Old Peter Miller! Come to get his revenge by watching his enemy hang. At that moment, Peter Miller walked up onto the gallows, presented the pardon signed by George Washington. And convinced that the document was real, the helpless, treasonous, enemy of the Continental Army, Michael Widman, was set free. He and Peter Miller walked home together. The worthiness of the recipient Absolutely nothing. The cost to the giver, well, it could have cost Peter Miller everything. And the logic behind that depth of love is almost inconceivable. In fact, Michael Widman couldn't even believe it himself, and yet it pardoned his crime and set him free. One of the things we have to understand about Good Friday and the crucifixion is that the pardon for your sin was presented. Your worthiness was nothing. The cost was absolutely everything. The logic behind it is inconceivable. The depth of love is unfathomable. And Paul says we rejoice in the hope of the glory of that. That is the ultimate picture of the glory of God. That by his death, you who were an enemy might be pardoned. You might be brought near. And as if that isn't enough, things didn't end on Good Friday. This is what the second half of Romans 5, 10 says, and verse 11. Then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now received this reconciliation. Depending on the translation that you use, some translations render the back half of verse 10. Then how much more, having been reconciled, will we live by his life? I'm going to tell my third story now. A few days have passed. Jesus is seemingly still dead. The darkness that covered the city when Jesus hung on the cross seems to still be all pervasive in the life of His followers. They're confused and uncertain about what all of this means in terms of the man that they'd given their lives to follow. And so on a Sunday morning, early, a few women hurry off to the tomb where he was buried. And upon their arrival, things are not as they expected. There are no guards present, guarding the tomb as there had been the day before. The large stone that had covered the entryway has been rolled aside, and they peek their heads in, and the tomb is empty. Jesus' body isn't present. And as they come out of the tomb, two men appear to them, and the women are terrified. But one of the men says, why are you looking for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen women are amazed and they do the only thing they can think of. They run back to Jesus' friends and followers and they tell them everything that they've seen. And in a moment of disbelief, two of them take off running toward the tomb and find it just as the women have explained, empty. And something amazing happened. Because at the crucifixion, the blessings of your forgiveness were bought. Jesus did something on your behalf that you totally did not deserve the proof of God's love is right there hanging on the cross and then on Sunday morning the proof of God's power is evident in the empty tomb because at the resurrection the consequences of sin were defeated rendered totally powerless the resurrection proves that Jesus's pardon for sin was accepted that the payment was made that the debt was erased God loves you so much that he gave you, who deserve nothing, absolutely everything. And yet, Jesus' death on your behalf isn't exactly the same as Peter Miller's pardon for Widman. Because it's as though you stepped up to the gallows, and Jesus presented himself out of the crowd, not just holding a pardon for your release, but walked forward and said, I want to hang in your place. That's different. And so he did. And yet, he lives. Resurrected, triumphing over death. And just as Peter Miller and Michael Widman walked home together, if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ then for the rest of your days and for all of eternity, you walk with him. Risen, reigning, living, hope, triumphing, over despair. You've not only been saved to an eternal life with God, but you've also been saved to a temporal life right here, right now, of joy and hope and fullness in the presence of Jesus Christ. That's not something you have to wait for. The resurrection has guaranteed it for us today. And Paul just kind of exclaims here in the second half of verse 10, if he died on the cross for your sin, and all of that is true, How much more than by his life can you live? The angel's question at the tomb to those women on that first resurrection Sunday is the same one for us. In all of our hopelessness and despair, why are we looking for the living among the dead? Why are we searching for hope among the despair? Why would we turn on the news and hope for something better? Why would we look around the world, or look at the world around us and be surprised when it's broken? Instead, you've got to look somewhere else. You have to look to the one who's triumphed over it. We need not look inside the tomb, but instead to the one who walked out of it. Because in his resurrection, the sting of death has been replaced by the sweetness of eternal life. Instead of daily drudgery and the monotony of our moment-by-moment existence, Jesus' resurrection holds out to us the possibility of life to the full. Instead of depression, there can be rejoicing. Instead of despair, hope can reign. At the resurrection, hope triumphed over despair. That's what we gather together on Easter Sunday to celebrate. That's why we sing the songs that we sing. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up, and we're going to close our time together with a little bit more worship. But as they get settled in, I want to make one thing very clear. For whatever reason, we approach holidays like Christmas and Easter, the birth of Jesus, the death and resurrection of Jesus, as if by just rolling into the nearest church, all the good things that the guy stands up in front and talks about apply to every single person. And as much as I want that to be true, the truth is all of the blessings of justification, peace with God, access to grace, rejoicing, hope no matter what your circumstances are, all of the wonderful hope and triumph that we talk about from the, res- from the resurrection becomes reality for those who take hold of God's grace by faith. God has done 99.99999 repeating percent of the work and all you have to do is place your faith in him to take hold of the grace that he's made available. But you have to take that step. He's done all the work on your behalf. You need not do anything but believe on him. And so this morning as we close, I want to make an offer. And that offer is, if you've not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, today could be the day that you do that. Today could be the day you experience peace with God. Today could be the day that you have access into His grace. Today could be the day that you have joy and hope, no matter what your circumstances are. Today could be the day that the work of Jesus Christ triumphs over all the brokenness in your life. If only you would place your faith in Him. Our staff would love to talk with you about that if that's not something you've ever done before. You can find one of us out at the Welcome Center when the service is over. Uh, We're going to stand up and we're going to sing, so you you can stand now. If you're someone who's already placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you live in light of the resurrection. You live in the light of hope triumphing over despair. So when you flip the news on and you see something difficult or you go about your life and you experience something broken or dark or not like you'd want it to be, you think to yourself, Jesus Christ has triumphed over that. And if he resurrected out of the grave, how much more can he bring healing and hope into my situation right now? As believers in Jesus Christ, we live in that reality. Let's worship that together now.